If I could have Sarah come on up. Uh, you'll know Sarah served our church for a couple years here at the office, and this was her last week with us, and, uh, and has done a, a phenomenal job, and I hope that you've all gotten to know her. Every time you answer, you answer the phone, you call the church, you have her friendly voice on there welcoming you, and uh, uh, you come into the office. And so we've been ever so grateful uh, for your service here at the church. So I thought, for, for starters, we just wanted to offer you some appreciation. So you clap your hands. While you're clapping, i got something for you. Because you brightened our days, we thought we would get you some flowers. Very good. Yeah, isn't that awesome? Very good. Now, um, also, Sarah isn't just leaving. The reason that she decided to, it was time to step down, was actually a step of faith. Uh, she had been, uh, felt like God was calling her into a different area of ministry. Here in the office, we do a lot of uh, supportive ministry. We help support other people in ministry. And Sarah was called kind of to some frontline ministry in the church. And though she doesn't know exactly how God was going to take care of her, her family, financially, all this kind of stuff, what that ministry looked like, she said, you know, I need to be obedient to God. And this is not a picture of faithfulness. And so what we want to do right now, we're going to commission her as a church. I'm, in the early church, you couldn't even tr- serve in the church pantry without being commissioned. So how much more so as a member of the body of Christ? Because we are all ministers, aren't we? Very good. So as she starts her next phase in ministry, we're going uh, to pray for you, and we're going to bless you and support you as, as you move ahead, which is pretty awesome stuff. And by the way, you need to talk to her about this story and what God has put on her heart. It's, it's pretty cool stuff. So uh, let's pray for her. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Sarah. We thank you for the way that she's been a blessing to this church and this church body. And Father, uh, we're, we're grateful that as she now moves ahead in ministry as part of the church, Lord, I pray that you would put your uh, your guidance in her heart. Father, I pray that you put your word on her tongue. Father, I pray that, that uh, you would direct her steps in this, that you would open the doors uh, right to exactly where you want her to go. Father, I pray for success in the battlefield, Lord, against the enemy. Lord, I pray for support. Help us as a church to, to know exactly how we can support her in this new phase of ministry. Lord, we know wherever uh, you go, as long as we're with you, great things happen. So, Father, we pray as we commission her and send her as part of the body, Father, that it, uh, she does not go alone, but as an extension of your greater body, Lord, that uh, your kingdom increasing. Uh, Father, may it be true in her that she is a disciple that builds disciples, Lord. And uh, we ask this all in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. All right, thank you. Very good. Well, as you will know, when Sarah leaves uh, as now and not in the office, that does leave a vacuum. And nature abhors a vacuum, and so do people in the office. So if you would like to be able to help, um, if you've got a couple hours um, throughout the next couple weeks as we uh, locate and, and raise up our next office administrator, you say, I can answer phones, or I can stuff bulletins, or I can make copies, or I can you know, enter data or go through the connection cards and get those things. If you could do that for the next, uh, you know, have a couple hours or whatever, um, let me know, and this is how you can do that. On your connection card, if you can just write OH for office help, right? Make sure I got your phone number on there. We'll be giving you a call um, and help schedule you and train you uh, for the next couple weeks as uh, we make this transition until we lift up that next person. I'll tell you, it's a, it's a really awesome thing to have uh, that kind of help. So no one's looking at your cards right now. I'm serious. Do you have? Okay. <laughs> Very good. All right. Let's get to the word. Daniel, man, this has been fun going through the book of Daniel. Ah, and I tell you what, after um, the holidays, after we get through Christmas and things, get the new year, we go through the prophecies, and Daniel, blow your mind. It's amazing. <laughs> like, God's got, God's got it, right? We see the world seems so out of control, and what a wonderful reminder we've had these last couple of weeks that God has it under control, and he has us. And not only does he have us, and he has everything part of an amazing plan that we get to be part of, but he invites us to work with him. 
And today we're going to talk about how to have this respectable faith in this hostile age, just like Daniel was. Uh, we get to learn about something a little different. It's, uh, it's how we have to respect the consequences of how we live. Even though God is sovereign, and he is absolutely sovereign, we have our plates parts to play. And how we live really does matter. And we'll get to see that in our, uh, in our story today. Now, the story that we have today from Daniel, chapter 5, happens about 30 years after chapter 3. Okay? In fact, um, I think that we have the wrong message pulled up. So uh, let's, uh, I'll just go through it myself. It's actually near the end of his ministry. Um, Daniel is, uh, is in chapter 4, actually. Chapter 4, we have Daniel uh, standing there before, um, uh, before Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, we have a transformation in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar, right? How he changes his, his heart and his life. Right? He becomes a, uh, a faithful man. He started out being a king, and then he reduced to a cow, and then he got brought back up to a king. Okay? So, so Nebuchadnezzar, at that point, we believe he, he actually had a conversion experience. He comes to Jesus. And, uh, you know, he doesn't know it's Jesus yet, but he knows that he says, God is God, and I get it now. At this point in his life now, he recognizes that, uh, that there is a different way. And we see that, that the whole kingdom of Babylon actually changes pretty drastically, pretty dramatically after that point. Um, but Nebuchadnezzar doesn't live forever. And so eventually he dies. And so um, after Nebuchadnezzar uh, passes, he, uh, he ends up having uh, the succession of the kings. And as that changes, um, people come into power who don't know the same God that Nebuchadnezzar found, right? And so the nation then becomes a little different. And so that's kind of where the story is in there. Now, the memory verse for today is uh, from Daniel chapter 4, verse 27. It says, this is the inscription that was uh, 525. This is the inscription that was written, many, many tekel parson. And you say, why are you memorizing that? Trust me, you will want to know this. This is good stuff. Plus, it's fun to memorize, and I'll teach you how to memorize it. So that's what you've got to do because it's easier if you get your body in. This is the inscription that was written. So you kind of write down on your hand. And then many, many, like there's lots, like five is a lot, and then five more is even more. Many, many. Tickle sounds like tickle. Parson sounds like person. So you like tickle a person. So this is the inscription that was written. Many, many, tickle parson. Okay? We got it? Now, I know that you probably will remember that all the rest of your life now because of these. But just in case in your... Uh, in your bulletin, there's that Bible memory verse card. And you could put that in your pocket, your wallet, tape it to the back of your phone. Uh, refer back to it this week. And uh, we'll go back to why that is such a powerful thing. And if, Whenever you see God's handwriting, writing on something, you're like, okay, maybe it's important for us to get. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, if you don't have your Bible, turn to, to chapter 5. That's going to be on page 617 if you have one of our Bibles. If you need a Bible... Got plenty of them in the back, always do. Pick one up. If you don't have a Bible, keep it. Our gift to you. All right, so Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 B.C., okay? And uh, so this story really happens after that point. In fact, it happens near the end of that. Nabonidus uh, was the last emperor or the, of uh, Babylon, and uh, he ends up keeping things to about 539. So this is about the era, about 540 is the time that frame for all of this. Uh, ne- when Nebuchadnezzar died, he was uh, succeeded by his son, Evil Marduk, which um, other scholars called Amel Marduk, because I don't know why. I think Evil's more fun, probably fit his name better, I don't know. But Evil ended up getting killed just a couple of months into his, he got assassinated by his son-in-law. 
Okay, and so that happened at 560. And then um, Labash Marduk, that's uh, uh, Negrassers, that was the guy who came from, uh, uh, assassinated his, his uh, father-in-law. Uh, he became uh, emperor for a short period of time, about nine months. And then Nabonidus ends up stepping in. And where is Nabonidus in the, um, in the lineage? We don't know. Um, we do know that he was related somehow to Nebuchadnezzar because in the scriptures here, uh, it keeps referring to uh, Nabonidus' son, Belshazzar, keeps referring to Nebuchadnezzar as your father, right? So it's in the family lineage. Somehow they were there. But the Babylonian um, documents and all that, of course, have been destroyed over time, and the scripture doesn't line out exactly how the, the succession was. So we don't know. Was he a, a son-in-law? Was he a son or whatever, but we, he ends up uh, taking... Now, Nabonidus was an interesting dude. No one liked him. And I think part of the reason that no one liked him is the fact that he wasn't like most emperors. He was um, really kind of the first archaeologist. And so what he did is he went around the empire, and um, he would restore old ancient places of worship. And a part of it came to... The one thing we do know about Nabonidus is that his mom was a a priestess in what they call the Temple of Sin, which I think is hilarious. But, um, but they didn't mean sin like we do. It meant uh, the Temple to the Moon Goddess. So she was a, uh, a priestess to the Moon Goddess, which means Nabonidus was favorable to the Moon Goddess, and not to the, the typical god that everybody else worshipped there in, um, in Babylon. So he, there's, so he was kind of away for a lot of the regular typical uh, worship things, and he favored the different goddess, and um, he was always out digging things up. And so a lot of the people in the Babylonian area, they didn't like him so much. And so um, so on a map, I should have put one up there. If Babylon is like here, right, you have like this desert, okay, and then you go all the way up, and you have like turkeys up there, and you come back around, there's like the desert here. You can't cross that Sinai Peninsula, right? It's like Jerusalem's here, and the Mediterranean Sea is like right there. You go keep going down around that. The very bottom, there's a little city down there, and that's where he spent most of his time. I mean, as far away from Babylon as you possibly could be. In fact, he spent 10 years there. Now, while he was out doing his archaeology stuff and worshiping moon goddesses and stuff, his uh, son, um, Belshazzar, ends up basically running the kingdom. And so by effectively, he was the king or the emperor of Babylon. Now, um, the Persians at that time were starting to grow stronger and stronger, as Daniel predicted they would, right? And the Persians begin to grow, and the Median Persian Empire starts to grow pretty strong, and eventually they start attacking. They go down into um, to the uh, to Babylon, and they say, listen, we want to, uh, we're going to, Take this land. And so what happens is Nabonidus now has got to get an army. Now, he is a scholar, not a warrior, right? So he takes the, the armies of Babylon, and he marches up north of Babylon and meets the, uh, the armies of Persia at this, at this little town up north of this, and it's, it's a little town called Opus, and gets destroyed, right? So now we have big trouble because there is nothing standing in between Persia and the capital of Babylon, Babylon, <laughs> which is like New York, New York. So they're going down, and so there's nothing. So what, what happens is Nabonidus, um, he, he's up there, and, and uh, everybody knows that they just lost this big battle. The Babylonians retreat back. They go along. There's a, there's a river that cuts through, the Euphrates River, 
And the Babylonians set up camp there, and they set up basically their battle lines, and they say, okay, the Persians are going to have to come through us to get to Babylon. The problem is, is that Babylon was seated on two different rivers. And the Babylonians picked the Euphrates, and the Persians sent a small expeditionary force around to the Tigris, kind of went behind them. And nobody knew this at the time. Right? But this is the setting in which this story takes place is that Babylon had known that their great army had just been defeated by the Persians, and the Persians were on the march down to destroy Babylon. And that their king was up there, had pro- had, at that point was either dead or he had fled, depends on which story you listen to, right? So you have Belshazzar thinks his dad's either a prisoner or captive or, or, or on the run. We don't know. And uh, that's the setting. So... What do we find? How does Belshazzar respond to this difficult news? Well, chapter 5, verse 1. Belshazzar gave a great banquet for, the, for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. It was like, if you ever watched like, uh, The Matrix, like the last one, they're like, humanity's going to die. They threw a party. That's what you do, right? That's what it sounds like at first, but that's not really what's going on. It's not as though uh, Belshazzar is like, I don't care. He says, okay, I'm going to throw a banquet. And the banquet, we learned some more important things about this. The banquet was a political banquet. He invites a thousand of the noble people. These are all the top people in all of the, the, the nation, right? He throws this banquet. This is a political thing, right? They're, they're circling the wagons. What are we going to do with the Persians, right? And he wants to honor them, and they throw this, this banquet. This was not a small thing. This was not a, a sl- little party. In fact, there's a lot of, um, there's some, uh, uh, cylinders were uh, histories were written at that time uh, by the Persians would write their history on the outside of a cylinder so you could I don't know you could read around it I guess and then uh, but they talk about how when Babylon fell there was a big party going on and that's exactly what you had so you have this the king is in there and he's got a thousand his nobles and uh, and uh, so we have uh, this thing now Nabonidus before this happened because he was a historical uh, he liked archaeology. He also believed deeply in the power of idols and that each little region had their own gods. And so what they believed is not that the idol had the power, but that the god of that idol would actually indwell the idol, and that's from where the power came from. So before he went, before Nabonidus went up to meet the Persians, he got all of these idols from all over the different parts of, of uh, the nation of, of Babylon, and he brought them into Babylon. And in fact, um, it made a lot of people upset because they said, you're taking our idols hostage which is what he was trying to do at all. He brought their priests and he took really good care of them, but he was trying to do is create an amazing amount of spiritual power in Babylon because it was Babylon was the house of gods, right? So he wanted all of these gods to be in there. He had this party, not just for nobles, but this party for gods. And everybody was together. Now, in this party, and it says that they have a thousand nobles, and then later on... Um, in verse 4, it says, As they drank wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. So they praised, they brought all these gods together, and it wasn't just a political party. It was a, a religious feast. It was appealing to the gods to protect them. This is a desperate people, and that's exactly where they were at. And so they pull in all of these, these idols from all over, and they're praising them, and they're saying, you guys are awesome, and you will protect us, and all that. But you know who doesn't have an idol? What God doesn't, doesn't take form, doesn't rest in, in things of wood and stone? The Jewish God. And he's one that's not contained by those things, right? There was no idol to honor him by. 
And so we have the, all the Babylonians and all of the highest people and they're drinking wine and, and, and praising it. And then uh, we see that uh, there's a God that is missing. Well, kind of. <laughs> see, uh, Belshazzar had a bad idea. He's going to bring in this other God. Now, I think it was actually as a form of insult. I think it was that they had these other gods that they were worshiping and honoring, like Marduk, which was the god of Babylon, the biggest one, right? And so he was, and, and uh, or Belshazzar's bad idea was, while, while Belshazzar was drinking his wine, in the Hebrew, it's actually a little more, it says, while he was feeling the effects of the wine, which means that he probably had more than a sip, right? right? Uh, he gave orders to bring gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, uh, his father, had taken from the temple of Jerusalem, Right? so that the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink for them. This was a bad idea. Right? So you remember those at the very beginning, if you go all the way back to the beginning of the book of Daniel, you'll see that, that Jerusalem got sacked, and when Daniel was taken, it said they took some of the temple implements. This is them. And isn't it cool how God sets things up? Like even when, when it looked like they were being taken over and it was their downfall, Jerusalem's downfall, God was setting up the downfall of, of Babylon at that very moment. Isn't it amazing how God works? I mean, just the poetry in it, it's just awesome. The irony is fantastic. But anyway, so, so this guy, Belshazzar, is thinking, all right, well, we don't have a God for Jerusalem. Let's bring in his implements. Let's drink out of these things and let's show how our gods are bigger than the gods of everyone else. And that's what he does. Now, the problem was that these were holy and consecrated items to God. Holy means that they're different. They're set apart. They're, they're not like other things, and they should not be treated like other things. And though we live in a culture that has n- very little respect for the holy, the reality is that our God is holy. And it doesn't matter what we think of what is holy. It matters what God considers holy. And these things were considered very holy. I think that the intent of doing this was to insult Yahweh, and build up Marduk and say, you, look at all these other gods that you've conquered. Right? You are strong. They're putting their faith in the wrong god. Now, scripturally, in church, you, we would say this is what's called sacrilege. And that kind of sounds like an oldie-time term, right? I don't know if many of us even know it. Like, she's like, oh, it's sacrilege. You know, sacrilege, it's, it's irreverent treatment of the holy. That's what it means. Irreverent treatment of the holy. And it is a big deal, especially in scripture. Now, there's different forms of sacrilege, like desecration. Desecration is a physical uh, is basically physical sacrilege. It's when you take something that's holy and physically uh, not treat it well, right? So we would see like Aaron's sons and when he, the priest, the high priest, right? When he was, uh, they lit a fire that wasn't the right way and the fire of God came and, and consumed them instead because they treated what was holy as unholy. That was desecration. Later on, it says in, in Daniel, and when you get the prophecies, that there was going to be a one who came that was going to do a, a desecration of the temple, was going to offer unholy sacrifices in the temple and treat it in that holy way, and bad things were going to happen to that person. Desecration is a big deal. Now, there's another form of, of, uh, of sacrilege, and that is blasphemy. Uh, you could think of it, blasphemy is verbal. Uh, it's, it's verbal sacrilege. It's treating something as not holy even in our lips. It's calling God not God. It's not treating him the way. In fact, Jesus said that there is a, a sin that can't be pardoned, and that is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's, treating, it's, it's calling God, even with our very lips, the Holy Spirit, as though he is not holy and it's not who he is, calling him wicked or evil or, or doing violence to him verbally. That's a big deal. We have to realize that sacrilege is not a small thing. 
And God doesn't mess around with it because our God is holy. And even though we are not accustomed in our culture to what is holy, right? Like even our political figures, like most of in history, people that were in political, like kings or whatever, if you said anything bad about them, you would probably die, right? So we would say we're not going to blaspheme the, the king or whatever. We don't have that. We have very little institutions in our country. And I think there's some strength to that. But, be, but a weakness is we don't understand what is holy. And there are consequences to that. And you know what? We have this king, Belshazzar, didn't understand what was truly holy. And there are consequences for that. He desecrated what the God had said was, was consecrated to him. So, what happens? Well, you ever heard the, fra- the, the phrase, the handwriting's on the wall? This is the actual historical event that that took place from. And it is so fun. I'm going to read some of it to you. Okay. It says... Uh, <clears throat> They're starting at verse 5. It says, suddenly, okay, after they they had done this, it says, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand on the royal palace. The king watched as the hand wrote, and his face turned pale, and he was frightened, and his legs became weak, and his knees were knocking. Right? That's the whole idea. Right? But he was there. And I think most of us would be too. It says, then the king summoned the enchanters and the astrologers and the diviners, and he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be, a no- will be placed, um, will have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom, and he will be clothed in purple. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale, and the nobles were baffled. So we have this crazy event takes place. Now, a couple things is that, why does he say, you know, we, we have this, the handwritings on the wall by a lampstand on the plaster of the wall. And I think it's interesting that in old ancient palaces, the kings would have on the plaster on the walls in their house, they would write down all the great things that they had done that they thought were great. Isn't it cool that God writes over and says, uh, no, not so great? I think it's cool it's by a lampshade. It wasn't in the dark corner. God wanted everyone to see it. He wanted to make sure it was, it was there. And, uh, and the fact of the matter is, is that he says, I'm going to give you some things. And we say, well, why would the person care about having a nice new purple suit and a gold chain, right, and being third in command? Well, this is what he's saying. Purple, like these, the nobles, right, were a different class. We have a, like uh, in England where you had the nobility and then you have everyone else. Babylon had that kind of structure. Okay? And if you were not born a nobility, you were not noble. It doesn't matter how rich or wealthy or anything you could do. You, there, was a, there was a class barrier you couldn't break. But to be clothed in purple, only the nobles could wear purple. It was a promise to say, if, for any wise man who could figure this out, you and your entire lineage, everything from this on, you will be considered noble in, in our culture. Be like knighted. The second thing is a gold chain put around your neck. It wasn't just for fashion. This was a sign of authority. Right? So he would be given uh, position. And said, listen, you, are, you, have, um, you have success. So people are now going to listen to you in, in a whole new way. It's like some people had like signet rings and you had the big gold chain. It was a sign for everyone else. Like this guy, uh, he has great authority. And not only would he have any authority, but it says you'll be third in line. Why third in line? Well, Nabonidus was number one. And, Na- and uh, Belshazzar, thinking his dad may still be alive, right? So he didn't want to make that political faux pas at that particular time. So he says, I'm number two. You'll be right behind me. In succession, right? So that's a pretty big deal. And so he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to basically give away the, a lot of the kingdom if you can just do this. 
Now we see a, a pattern here, don't we? They have the kings of Babylon will have something of interaction with God. God will reveal something to them. They don't know what it means, so they call in their wise men. And then the wise men uh, go and try to figure it out, and they can't figure it out. Do you see a pattern? It doesn't matter how many times, and I don't know about you, but uh, a lot of times in our life, God will be working in, in our lives, and then we will uh, we'll go back to the same old patterns of things that don't work, trying to figure it out. And, uh, and we see that the kingdom had done the same thing. But the queen mother, which was probably Babylon uh, or uh, Belshazzar's mom, uh, she's like, hey, you know, um, there's, a, there's a better way to do this. And so the queen, uh, it says in verse 10, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles came over from the banquet hall. And this is why we think it was the queen mother, is that she wasn't there at the banquet herself. Okay? And she says, may the king live forever. Don't be alarmed. Don't look pale. All right? Get your act together, dude. It's not all bad. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. And in the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him, uh, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, it's the first time you see his name in there, uh, whom the king called Belshazzar, Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams and explain riddles and to solve different problems. So call for Daniel, and he will tell you what this means. What a great thing. He's got a problem. He f- didn't even know Daniel. Why? Well, Daniel's in his 80s. He was retired for quite some time by this point, right? He's living the good life in Babylon. He'd done his service, right? But the queen remembers, and I'll tell you, a lot of times we live lives of faithfulness, and then it doesn't seem like there's any fruit for that after a while, right? It seems like we're forgotten, but you're not forgotten. I think it's important for us to remember that sometimes the seeds we plant of faithfulness and of respect sometimes don't get harvested until much later in life. Right? I think our culture tells an, an amazing lie to us that says at some point in our lives we become old and then we're, not, uh, we're no longer relevant. And it's quite the opposite in reality. Is that when we live lives of faithfulness, we live lives of, of, of wisdom, right? the, later on in life when things go bad, people are going to turn to you. Your children, those who knew about you, are going to turn to you. There's an amazing amount of wisdom and advice. And the king, uh, he had not even remembered Daniel, he had retired before he came into power, but the queen did and said, you know what, this guy can help. See, God is sometimes planting seeds of faithfulness and opportunity in our life way earlier, decades earlier in our life, and we don't even know it, which is why we need to be faithful today, because we have no idea how he wants to use us tomorrow. It's powerful. Anyway, the king calls for Daniel, and he says, all right, can you do this? (laughs) And he says to Daniel, I'll give you all that stuff. And Daniel's like, keep your trinkets. I don't want them. Because Daniel knows what's going to happen. Right? It's like, uh, I don't want to be a noble in your kingdom right now. Thank you very much. Things aren't going to go so well. Right? And you can keep your gold chain because I don't really want to dis- distance myself. I'm an old man. I'm probably going to be okay when the Persians come. And being third in command, I don't want that job now. Thank you. But I will tell you. I will tell you what God said. And so... Uh, he does. And so um, I love how he begins. Uh, he gives, he reminds the king of Nebuchadnezzar's lesson in faithfulness. He reminds him that Nebuchadnezzar, the one who preceded him, somehow he was related to, had this opportunity when he was the greatest king of Babylon. He had this opportunity where he was turned into a cow for seven years and everybody knows about it. In fact, ev- not just everybody knows about it, he wrote about it. He said, to all peoples on earth, get this. This was not 
something that would be forgotten. I mean, this was a huge lesson. But Belshazzar forgot. Oh, and by the way, some people are like, is Belshazzar the same? as no, is Belshazzar is the king. Belteshazzar is, is Daniel. So there's a T. If you hear the T, he's a good guy. Okay? All right. So well, I'll just call him Bel- Daniel from, from this point. But anyway, he have this... Uh, he says, listen, king, you should know this. You should know there's a sovereign God. He showed it to your kingdom, right? He told exactly who he was, right? And you didn't get it. And instead, you decided to drink out of his cup. Bad idea. And you think about the, uh, the courage it took this old man to stand toe-to-toe with the king who could have him executed at that very second. But he wouldn't fear the king because he had stood with the Lord. And so he brings a fourfold charge, starting in verse 22, against the king. He says, But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. The first charge is that you did know better. You can't claim ignorance. You chose to forgot who God is. The second thing is, verse 23, is it says he's insulted God. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. That's a bad idea, especially looking at the circumstances, right? You had a God who already revealed himself to Babylon. You had a God who already said, I'm going to, you know, this is what I'm going to do, and it's been kind and gracious to your nation. Instead, you have insulted him. Bad idea. Verse 23 also has another one. It says that you have put your trust in, in the wrong gods. Right? It says uh, you, had, uh, you prized the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. You're putting your trust in the wrong thing, and you knew better, and you did it anyway. And now you insult God, but now you're putting your trust in, the, in his false competition. And then at the end, verse 24, he says that he bit the hand that holds you, right? It says, that, but you did not honor the God who holds you in his hand, all right? In fact, it says it holds in his hand your life and death and even ways of living. So I think if we made that into our, our own vernacular, it would be like, you did trust God and doesn't only just hold your life in, in your future, but also the American way of life, which is how we would think of it, right? That's exactly what he was saying to Babylon, the Babylonian way of life. Everything you think and know, God is the one who provides that. The peace, the security, all that stuff. God holds it in your hand, but you have, instead of trusting him, right, you have violated him. You have insulted him. And so that very hand who was going to protect you is now going to condemn you. And so that's what it says in verse 24. Therefore, he has sent his hand to write the inscription. And this is the inscription that was written, many, many tekel parson. And then in verse 26, he tells him just how bad it is. This is the judgment. Okay? You have many. Many means God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Many means numbered, and it's there twice, because remember that they didn't have bold and italics and underline. Maybe the w- writing on the wall did, I don't know. But he writes it twice because in the culture, if you say it twice, it's more important. It's like, you have been numbered. Your days are numbered, and they are up. So the first part, there's always two parts of the judgment in, on these words. The first one is numbered, your days are numbered, and the second part is they're up. You don't have any more days. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found Wanting. Tackled is weighed. Your life has been judged. Right? So the first one is you've been, 
You've been measured, you've been weighed, not only been weighed, but you found out that you don't measure up. You're inadequate. And then parson means cutting or severing. And it says, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. You've been measured, right? You've been numbered, and you don't, <laughs> you've been, fall, you're done. And now everything, king, is being taken from you. And not just from you, but from your nation. It's gone. That is a, a pretty big, uh, that's, pr- that's pretty bad, right? And I think how gracious of God to be able to say to the king, this is exactly what I'm doing. Because a lot of times in our life, we don't get the handwriting on the wall. But our days are numbered. And what we do, it finally catches up with us, and we face the consequences. And the king needed to know that's exactly why he was facing the consequences. Now, Daniel also gets this, too. Uh, many for Daniel, I think, is that Daniel's days are numbered, but they're not up. Right, because we see that after this, Daniel keeps on. This is not the last chapter in Daniel, is it? Tackle, I mean, Daniel had been found faithful. He had been measured. His life had been measured. The king looked at Daniel and said, not only is your days not up, but you're a faithful guy. And I'm going to give you a purple robe. I'm going to give you the gold chain. I'm going to give you uh, a position in my kingdom. You're, you've been found faithful. You're a faithful person. So it goes both ways, doesn't it? And then Parson Daniel is being, finally being cut free from the yoke of Babylon, the country that sacked his homeland. You know, sometimes judgment, we look at judgment, we're always, it's terrible, but God's judgment is always loving and is always good. It can be harsh and cruel for those that are deserving of it, but for God's faithful, God's judgment is not something that we necessarily need to fear. And Daniel, I think he stood there knowing that things were going to change and not exactly how they were going to change. He's seen that the country that he was in was being judged, but do you see Daniel like being terrified? He stands with confidence because he doesn't stand with the nation as much as he stands with his God. Let me go back one. So we have verse 29. Daniel is is honored. He gives the king the news, and the king says, you're going to get all of these great things. Verse 29, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. He got the chain, was placed around his neck. He was proclaimed to be the third highest ruler in the kingdom. There are times in life I think it's amazing that the king decides to drink out of Yahweh's cups but then decides to honor Yahweh's prophet, but it's too late. It was, you can't buy off God. And there was a time and there was a judgment and it had come and it was too late and there was no turning back. But Daniel, because he was faithful, he was even honored by the secular world, right? A life of faithfulness. Now it says later, that night, the very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So how did that happen? Well, the Babylonians went, to, went to west. The Persians went east. There's a couple different accounts of how the city fell. Uh, some of them say that the Babylonians, they were so fed up with their leader that they welcomed the Persians in. Were like, hey, come on in and kill that guy. Right? Some of them probably because they knew that there was a lost cause. Their army already lost. But, um, but there's been some pretty strong archaeological evidence and historical evidence from um, some Greek historians that say that the Babylonians, what they did is, or the Persians, what they did is they diverted the river. There was, because Babylon or sat right on a river, and there was a gate runner there, and they diverted the river enough that they snuck their armies right inside, and then they were able to go right in. They were right there, um, right past the gar- garrison, and the Babylonians didn't even see them coming, and they were inside of the, the, uh, 
the, the palace where all this was taking place um, by around midnight to one o'clock. And that's when, so probably the king got this and within a few minutes he was probably dead. That to me is amazing. Right? God brought judgment, but Daniel survived. Swift. Swift. So what do we get from this? Right? This is a crazy story. What do we get from it? Well, there's a couple key truths in here. The first one is that many, our days are numbered. I think having a respectable faith in this world is we start to respect the right things. Uh, God holds our hand, our, our life in his hand, doesn't he? he? I mean, he says in scripture many times that our days are numbered. He knows the very number of breaths you're going to take in your life, right? It's, it's, it's already, he gets it. We are not going to live on this plane forever. And we need to live understanding that because tomorrow may be too late for faithfulness. Today is the day for faithfulness. And if we keep putting God on the back burner and we keep saying to God, you know what, I'm going to take care of this and once I get through this phase of life, then I'll be faithful to you. You might be like Belshazzar and you might run out of time. And a lot of people do. And scripture warns us, screams at us all the way through its pages saying, don't let that happen because the consequences are real. And when judgment finally does come, if you are not ready, there is no hope. But there is hope today. I think the first thing is understand that we need to be more like Daniel than Belshazzar. Daniel lived his life faithful in the quiet times when he thought no one was looking. He lived his life knowing that there was a God, there was a certain period of time, and during that period of time, he had an opportunity to invest that life in something that mattered, or he could invest it in selfishness. And he invested in faithfulness. What an example. Now, I'll tell you, if a man who was ripped from his home and taken captive to another country, right, and and had all those things that were hostile against him can live a faithful life, how much more so you and me, who were born in a country with great privilege? Our days are numbered. The second thing is tackle. That our lives are being weighed. Not for salvation, but they are being weighed. Now, it says in the Scripture, if we want to live life, if we want to earn our salvation, we're all going to be found wanting. There is no one righteous, not even one. Every one of us starts. When we come to Christianity, we recognize we're a sinner. We can't earn it on our own. That was the power of the cross. Jesus said, I will trade places with you. You deserve judgment. I want you to be saved. I will take your judgment. So Jesus faced judgment for us so we could trade places. That's an amazing thing. I mean, what a, that's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? That you, you recognize that you're a sinner. I hope so. If you don't, then that's pride, so you're a sinner, right? We're all sinners. We all fall short, but Jesus faced that for us. That is awesome. But then what happens afterwards? We're saved. We're children of, of the kingdom of God. Does it matter how we live? Some people say, well, because Jesus saves us and there's grace in that, Right? If I try to live a life of faithfulness now, it's just going against the grace that he's given us. Paul addresses this in Romans. And he says, you know, should we just keep on sinning so that grace can abound? And his answer is the biggest no that you can possibly get in the Greek. It's called meganoita. It's like mega no. It's like the biggest no you could possibly get. And that's what he writes. He says, mega no, don't live that way. He says, we were saved, set free for those things so we could live a new life. And how we live matters. Jesus did say that our lives will be weighed at the end. Right? We're going to have to give an account for how we live. And every idle word that we speak, it does say that for believers. It says that there will be rewards for faithfulness. And there will be loss for faithlessness. Not our salvation, praise God. But our lives matter. 
And I want to say to you, Christian, if we are living today just on grace, but we are not living also because of that grace out of faithfulness, I think that that word tekel should mean something to you. We need to recognize in our life that, that how we live matters, not just for the eternal, but for today. We are building the kingdom of God. God was able to use Daniel because he lived a faithful life. God was able to use Daniel in a hostile age because he lived a faithful life. And God did amazing things. You know, for you and for me, it's not about us anymore. I'm already saved. But if I have the ability to live a life in such a way that it shows people who God is, that turns them to him, right? If I can live in such a way that actually reflects the fact that I believe that God really knows better than me, right? That there is something good in this world and I can follow him and not live out of the fear of this world. If that points people to God and shows his majesty, then that's how I want to live. We need to be thinking about our life. Think about how we live. What are your values and your priorities? How are you living? It is being measured, not just by God, but also by this world. I think the last part is parson. Separation. Judgment is coming. Now, there are two ways that we can go through this separation. When we die, it says there's a judgment coming. For those who are in Christ, we are separated from our sin and brokenness forever. Isn't that going to be cool? It's a division, and there is going to be no, nothing left in us that is still broken. We will be taken from this broken world and brought into a world that made in perfection, right? Our very spirits, that sin nature, cut out of us, right? The most amazing thing, regenerated to be like Christ and the fact that we will now disagree with God, right? Things will be good. There will be a complete separation from the brokenness that humanity brought into this world, that we brought into our life. That is a great judgment, isn't it? That's why, like John says, come Lord Jesus, come. But if you chose not to stand with God and you want to hold on to your sin and you want to be like the Babylonians who worship the gods who don't have the power to save them, then when that separation comes, you will be divided and you will be separated from God. Not if you're saved. If you're saved, you're with God. But if you're not saved, if you're trying to hold on, you're saying, I'm going to save myself, I'm going to do all the good works, but I don't need Jesus, and I'm putting my faith in good works, I'm putting my faith in my spirituality, but not my faith in Jesus, I'm putting my faith in, in, in what I can do. There's a time coming when you've treated the holy thing of God, the gospel, as unholy. Judgment is coming for all of us. It's not just Babylon, and it's not just the, uh, <laughs> it's not just the people in the old covenant. Judgment comes for all of us someday. We need to realize and live in such a way that we are ready for it. How do we prepare ourselves for judgment? The first thing that we need to do is turn to Jesus. We need to stand with him so we can be separated from our sins. Let him take those sins, right? But then we need to live faithful lives in him, not so we can stay standing with him, but because we do stand with him. Because judgment is coming. There's a many, a many, a tackle and a parson on the, right, on the walls of all of our lives. I think that's the power of this passage. So how do we, what's our takeaway? I think we need to respect consequences. I think we need to live our lives soberly and with such a way to understand that this is not a game. You don't come to church because it makes us feel good. We come to church because our God saved us and he said, I want you to come together and give me worship one day a week. Yes, sir. We don't serve other people because I feel like it. We serve other people because our God who loves us served us and said, now in my name, go and serve people. That's why we do it. It's not a game, and it's not about you anymore. Judgment is coming, and let's live like it is. And so when it comes, we can be ready, and we can be like Daniel and say, yes, that's where we want to be. So don't be like Belshazzar. 
We know better, don't we? Those of us who understand the gospel, we see that Jesus came, he died on the cross. We know better. We don't need to insult the Almighty. We don't need to say, God, thank you for your salvation. I'll earn my own, thank you very much. We don't need to trust in the unmighty, right? We can't trust in our own good works or our spirituality or how smart we think we are, right? We, don't, we must not bite the hand that holds us. Instead, I think we should be like Daniel. We need, to, we need to live our lives with purpose, right? Know that they're numbered. Live with purpose for the kingdom. The second thing is, is, is live faithfully, knowing that our lives are being, are being weighed. And just like that parson is, we need to live for God, not for this world. And I'll tell you, the cool thing is, is once Jesus says, if you lay down your life for him, you're going to find real life. And even the people in this world will recognize it. Faith in a respectable age. So how do I put this into practice? Well, I've got some ideas for you. I do every week because hearing the word without doing anything is a bad idea. We don't like those. So here on the back here is a couple things that I'm going to challenge you to do. If you would like to check or circle or whatever what you'd like to do. The first one is maybe memorize Daniel 5.25. I will tell you, I memorized this passage and when I was in Bible college with, um, and Amy and I were there, and it's changed the way that I live because I get off track a lot, and that's where the grace of God comes in, right? Fortunately, I'm not saved by my perfection, but there are times where I'll start to get the wrong things and say these other things are more important, like somebody will insult me and I'll want to go to war with them, right? And do things that are kind of sinful and not right. And, and I'll tell you what, many, many tackle parson. You know, my days are numbered and what I do today matters. And, and how I live, is, it matters. And, and that there are consequences for how I live. I'll tell you that this is just, there are times in my life where I've done the right thing right? And it's been hard. Like, I'd say, okay, I'm going to serve you and all this kind of stuff. And this is such an amazing thing. It's like, yes, I got it. Let this passage be a guard for you, like the word is supposed to be. Let it defend you against the idea that this world doesn't matter what you do. You matter deeply, and how you live matters. So maybe that's what you do. You memorize this. Or maybe what you need to do is read Daniel 5. I skimmed it, right? I went over, cut some highlights. I gave you some, some better insight historically, give you the context of it. Read it. It's powerful. There's a lot in there. Or maybe what you need to do this week is say, you know what? I need to start worshiping God. And I'm not saying just like standing in your shower singing worship songs. I mean like this. Like, worshiping God is this. We worship what our lives revolve around, whatever's in the middle. You think of like the earth worships the sun, and this is kind of the idea. Whatever your life revolves around is what you worship. And I want you to, maybe this week, as you start to look at what is your life revolving around, what do you make your plans around, right? What do you think about all the time, right? What is the central hub of your life? And if it is not God, then that is idol worship. Now, fortunately, we have a graceful God, right? He's gracious and he can help us. But I tell you what, it's better if we have our lives revolve around God. When I say worship God, I think it's a, it starts this week by taking an honest evaluation. So I'm going to take an honest evaluation of my life before God. You go this week and you say, God, show me. Really think about, look in your day plan, look at your, your checkbook, look at your, uh, your, the, your activities. What are you spending your time in? Right? What does your life truly revolve around? Because how on earth can you possibly repent if you don't know what you're doing? And maybe you find out that you really are worshiping God, and even better, isn't that? Maybe that's what you need to do this week. That's hard. Or how about this? Maybe you already know that there are priorities, things that God wants you to do, and you've been saying, God, tomorrow. I'll do that tomorrow. Maybe what you need to do is recognize that there is a many, there is a numbering of things. Right? It matters what you do today. And maybe say, you know what, today is the day I make God's priorities my priorities. 
I'm grateful that he'll help me <laughs> with grace when I don't get it right, but he'll help me learn how to live those. But make the commitment to say, God, what you say is important, which I already know you say is important, I'm going to make important. Maybe that's what you do. Maybe there's something else you need to do. Write it down here at the, uh, on the other line there that says other, that lets me know what God is doing in our, in our church. I can pray with you and support that. If you have another decision to make on the other thing, check that. Uh, let me know. And also, if you have a prayer request, here's the cool thing about our God. He is a judging. He is a God who does judge. He has the right to do it, but he's also a God of great mercy and great kindness. And he says, you don't have to do this alone. And he invites us to invite him into our lives. And that's what we get to do every week. And I'll tell you, the great joy is, is as you allow me to pray for you, I see God doing amazing things. So please, if you have a prayer request, something that's going on in your life, if you could use some help, if you need some guidance, if there are things that he's, he has a burden on you, Jesus said, cast your cares upon me. Write those things down, and we will be praying for you this week. And it's cool with this amazing, this, this sovereign God, when he comes into our life and we invite him to, good things happen. So write those down. Here in a second, we're going to take our offering. Um, as we take our offering, please take these connection cards, put them in. Remember, this is also our fifth Sunday, so if you have a fifth Sunday offering, it's a great time to put that in the basket as well. And as the baskets are being passed, I'm going to have, we have a, a team uh, from our church that's going to be going doing some prison ministry. So for all of those that are in, going out to do the prison ministry this next week, we're also going to pray and commission them. So uh, then we will finish with a little worship song. Okay, so let's pray for our offering, and uh, let's do that now. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness, your kindness, Father, that you remind us that this world isn't forever. That you remind us of judgment and that judgment is not necessarily a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. You bring about, you, you end wickedness. You are good. Father, the part that's the problem is that we're not good. All of us recognize that we're not. And uh, we all have our hands stuck in the cookie jar. So, Father, I pray uh, a prayer of gratitude for your grace. I'm grateful that you didn't say that we had to be saved because we, we deserved it, but that you brought Jesus, who he died on our behalf, Father, that uh, we wouldn't have to pay that penalty. We're grateful that he rose again and proved that he really is God, that he had the ability to, to pay all of our price for all of our sin. And Father, and he showed us a better way to live, a way of, a way of grace. But God, also a way of faithfulness, even as Jesus said, that uh, in being a disciple is learning to obey everything that he commanded. So, Father, I pray that you help us to live a life of full grace. This church, Father, I pray that uh, you would help us to live wise lives, knowing that we're not here forever. God, let us make the most of the opportunities you bring before us, not so that we would receive his glory, but, Father, that you would. Father, I pray that when judgment comes, Lord, that the that those in this world will, will have been able to turn their eyes to you because we have been faithful. And God, we want to stand with you, so please do that for us. Lord, I pray for these uh, commitments that we make today. Help us to keep them in a way that honors you. I pray against the enemy who would like to do everything to make us feel offended because a judgment is coming. I know he hates judgment. But God, help us to be open to your judgment, knowing that it is good and it is right. Father, I also pray, too, for uh, our offerings and our tithes that are, are being made, Lord. This is an investment in your kingdom. So, Father, please accept it as such, as an as a expression of our faith in you and our love for what you have done for us. Lord, build your kingdom in us and through us in these things. And, Father, uh, we also, uh, Lord, we, we want to pray, uh, ultimately, Lord, that your kingdom not just come alive in us and through us, but, Father, would be evident to those all around us. Lord, we want to know you. We invite your Holy Spirit to make a difference in our life. Change us from the inside out. Make us your disciples, we pray in Christ's name.